Well, this morning as we finish our series, as we have said, in discovering God, looking at God's attributes, this morning we're going to Acts 5, so uh, please do come with me, Acts chapter 5. Uh, if you're finding that on a pew Bible, in the pew in front, in the little holder, you'll find that on page 1097 this morning. So page 1097. And so this series has been a little bit different uh, from our usual series in that we're, we're sort of moving from different passages of Scripture, uh, thinking about the various attributes, the various characteristics of who our God is, what He is like, discovering Him, seeing that He is not like us and yet He loves us. And so this morning we land in Acts chapter 5. And what's been happening in Acts chapter 5? Well, uh, you'll see there that there's been uh, great hostility towards the apostles. They've been preaching and, and teaching people about Jesus, uh, and uh, the officials have grown con- uh, increasingly restless with them. They've thrown them into jail, and we're going to pick up the reading at verse 21b. Uh, so, verse 21, about halfway through the verse. When the high priests and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what could have come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. And having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We give you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter And the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you have killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and the forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, 
and his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if they propose or, or activity is of human origin, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us this morning. Rabbi. It really is a joy and a privilege to get to worship with you and be with you this morning. And as John said, we're, we're continuing on with our series on the attributes of God, and today we're looking at the sovereignty of God. Now, for, for many of us, when we hear the word sovereignty or sovereign, we, we quite naturally think of an earthly king or queen, an, an earthly ruler, someone who, who's authoritative, who has power and has control, someone who rules their nation with an iron fist. Uh, maybe someone like uh, King Louis XIV of France, perhaps King Henry VIII, or maybe some kind of fictional king. And, and though we refer to these people as, as sovereigns, people who exercise sovereignty, the reality is that they do not really have absolute authority over their kingdoms, do they? For example, they're not sovereign over nature. They can't control whether a famine or a plague is going to break out. They can take some preemptive measures or, or react to these kinds of outbreaks, but they cannot stop the possibility of such events, can they? Nor are they even able to rule their people with absolute authority. There's countless examples in history of nations rising up against their rulers and getting rid of them when they're not happy with what they're doing. They can't uh, control how long they reign either. The longest reigning king that we have in, in modern history is King Louis XIV, who reigned for 72 years, and the shortest, some say, reigned for a whole whopping 20 minutes. You know, there's, there's countless people who reign for less than a day. And in light of history, even 72 years is merely just a drop in the bucket. So when we stop to think about it, we see that the human sovereignty on earth is, is merely a fantasy. Earthly sovereigns rule only for brief periods, and since we're all human, fallen human beings, their reigns are often accompanied by abuse of their authority, abuse of their power. The good news for us today is that there is one who's exercising supreme authority over all creation and for all eternity. The triune God of the Bible is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he exercises his sovereignty with perfect love justice, and mercy. He alone is truly sovereign, and every page of our Bibles testifies to this truth. So what does it mean 
that God is sovereign. Well, simply put, we might say that the sovereignty of God is the fact that he's Lord over all creation. And as Lord, he rules over creation. John Frame provides us with a helpful framework to speak about God's sovereignty that we're going to use this morning. So we're going to see God exercise his sovereignty uh, first through God's authority as king and Lord, second through his control over all things, and third through his presence with his covenantal people and throughout his creation. So first, let's, let's look at God's sovereign authority. And, and to understand God's authority, we have to go right back to the very beginning. Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has such authority that physical matter, which did not exist before, all of a sudden burst forth into existence at his mere command. God speaks There's nothing there before, and the matter cannot help but obey, and it bursts forth into existence. He says, let there be light, and there's light. In Genesis 1-1, we also see that reality is twofold, right? As Frame suggests, we have to understand everything here within the context of a distinction between the creator and creature. He is completely other. He is the creator. He is holy. We've been looking at this and his attributes the last several weeks. Without God, nothing would exist. We would not exist. And we are his creatures, and we rightfully belong to our creator. In her book, None Like Him, Jen Wilkin puts it this way. She says, we owe God our allegiance for one simple reason. Not because we sinned against him and feel guilty, and not because he saved us and we feel grateful. We owe him our obedience because he made us. He holds authority over us because he is our author. It is his natural right as our creator. The potter forms the clay, and the clay does not question its design or purpose, but it has no need to. He is a good potter, and he knows what he's doing. Now, in his sovereign authority over creation, God also exercises sovereign control. This means that everything happens according to his good plans and intentions. This idea of control is usually the first one that comes to our mind when we think about the sovereignty of God. And the Bible teaches very clear that God controls all things. So first, God is in control over time and history. Hear the words of, of Paul in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Here's what the apostle says. He said, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Nigel preached on God's omnipresence? That's God is not only present everywhere, he is also present at all times. The creator is not bound in time as we are. He stands outside of time and he sees the beginning from the end. Isaiah 6, uh, 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. 
Here, God announces that he's sovereign over history and that he has declared how things will be from the very beginning and that he will bring his purposes to fulfillment. And the events of Scripture bear testimony to God's sovereignty throughout history. In, in fact, God, in his omniscience, remember that's that he knows all things, he knew that Adam and Eve would fall even before creation. In Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is referred to as the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. This means that God's plan to redeem creation was in place before he ever spoke creation into being. Humanity's fall did not catch God off guard. Sending Jesus was not God's plan B. Jesus' incarnation, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension were all the original plan made before God even made the very first molecule. Now, God's sovereignty extends not only to the cosmic realities of creation, but also to the smallest and most minute corners of the universe. Jesus himself bears testimony to this truth in Matthew chapter 6 when he speaks of how God feeds the birds of the air and he clothes the grass of the field. A little later in Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. A penny is not much. These two sparrows, we might say, might not be worth very much, but yet not one of them dies without the father's consent. God is in control of all things, from the grandest of galaxies to the most microscopic of particles. Our R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, if there's one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If God were not sovereign over every aspect of creation, he would not be God. Furthermore, God's plans in his sovereign authority, in his sovereignty over control of, of big and small, his plans cannot be thwarted. Nothing catches God off guard and nothing surprises him. No one can stand in the way of God accomplishing his purpose. One of the major themes of the book of Job is God's sovereignty. And at the end of the book, after God has challenged Job, and here I'm picking up in Job 42, 1-2, we read, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and none of your plans can be thwarted. There are no limits to God's sovereignty. He acts completely freely, requiring permission from none. Wilkin writes, Because he needs nothing from anyone, he knows all things, is everywhere present, holds all power, no one exists who could possibly trump or challenges plans. His limitlessness in every area points to his sovereignty over all things. And one other aspect I want to talk about God's sovereignty is I want to mention his sovereign presence. We need to make sure that we know that he is not a distant, impersonal God holding us at arm's length, but he is intimately personal. He has chosen a people to be his own, and he watches over us and his creation with loving care. There's no corner of the universe where he's not present and he's not sovereign. He exercises his sovereignty in a wise and loving and purposeful way. Now, before you move on uh, today's, to today's passage, I want to briefly touch on two issues that 
arise when we talk about the sovereignty of God. First, uh, free will, and second, the problem of sin, the problem of evil. So as, as we've seen, the Bible makes abundantly clear that God is absolutely sovereign. But the scriptures also make clear that we as humans have free will. How can this be? Does our free will put us outside of God's sovereignty? Or has everything been predetermined? And if so, then what's the point? Now, it's true that from a human perspective, there's, there's a paradox here. The Bible clearly affirms both God's sovereignty and our free will. And as I was uh, preparing uh, the sermon for this week, I came across a, a quote by A.W. Tozer that I found especially helpful. Uh, here's, here's what he said. He said, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. So essentially what Tozer is saying is that by exercising our free will, we are fulfilling God's sovereign decree. Now, addressing how this paradox plays out in salvation, my mentor Charles Quarles would say that when a person is saved based on their submission to the lordship of Christ, they're saved in such a way that only God receives the credit and only God receives the glory. And when a person is condemned based on their rejection of Christ's lordship, they have no one to blame but themselves. Now, as humans, we don't like paradoxes, and we often try to solve them in, in any way that we can. And the problem is, I don't think we're meant to resolve the tension here of this paradox. Yes, God is sovereign, and yes, we have free will. And we know that God's ways are not our ways. We know that he is infinitely high above us, that he is God and we are not. So we shouldn't be surprised when there's part of God's salvific plan that we don't fully comprehend with our fallen human minds on this side of heaven. Well, what about the problem of sin and evil? If God is sovereign, how can he continue to allow the sin and evil in this world? Again, we have to say that since God decreed that we should have free will, that we fulfill that decree when we choose to exercise our free will, either for good or for evil. And so what we have to be absolutely clear on, what Scripture makes absolutely clear, is that God does not cause evil. He is not the source of evil. Evil came into this world through our rebellion, through humanity's rebellion and sin. And though he, he does permit us to choose between good and evil, he is not the cause or the source of evil. Now, the good news is that in his sovereignty, God is able to use even the sinful and evil actions of men to accomplish his purposes. And we see this very clearly throughout Scripture, and we see it also in the story of Joseph. So uh, remember, his brothers sold him into slavery because they had uh, sin in their heart. They were jealous of the treatment he was receiving. Yet God used that evil act in a significant way in his plan to create for himself a chosen people. Genesis 50, 20 shows us that even Joseph recognized the hand of God in the midst of his suffering. He says, when he's speaking to his brothers at the end of the story, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Paul also emphasizes this important truth in Romans eight twenty eight when he writes, we know that all things work together 
for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so as Christians, we must admit that there are no simple answers to these two questions. If there were, we would have already found them. Countless books and countless sermons have been written and preached in the last two millennia on these two issues alone. Here's, Here's what we do know. God is sovereign. God is good. And God's answer to sin in the world was planned before the world was created, and it climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself. He took the punishment we all deserve and defeated sin and death. And he rose again, ascended into heaven, and he will come to set all things right once and for all. He will usher in a new kingdom where there will be no more sin, no corruption of the created order. And until he returns, we have the free will to either submit to Christ as Lord or to reject his authority. Now let's briefly turn to our passage in Acts. Earlier, John read from us from Acts chapter 5. And I want to keep that in mind as we look at Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. It's one of my favorite passages in Acts because it shows God's sovereignty over salvation history. All throughout the history of the people of Israel, God continued to be at work in spite of people's sin and rebellion. And so I'm going to remind you a little bit of the context of what's going on here before we dive into Acts chapter 7. So Acts chapter 5, the apostles are in jail for preaching the gospel. An angel miraculously releases them at night and says, go and preach the gospel. And so in the morning they head out and they go and they preach the gospel again. And so then they're brought back before the council once again and and questioned. And uh, they're the Sanhedrin is very upset. They want to put them to death. And then we have this man named Gamaliel, this, this teacher. And he, he, has, he has a lot of wisdom, actually, in this passage. And so he says, listen, false teachers, false messiahs have risen before, and they've fizzled out and gone away. Uh, if this is a movement of, of men, it's going to do the same thing. It's going to go, and it'll disappear, and we won't hear of it again. But if this movement is of God, if what these guys are doing is of the Lord, we are not going to be able to stop it. And in fact, we might find ourselves in opposition to God. And so Gamaliel's wisdom here in his words in 538 through 42 foreshadows what is to come in the rest of Acts. You cannot stop the activity of God. So after this episode with the apostles, we encounter Stephen and his ministry, and he's doing all kinds of wonderful things, uh, serving the widows and, and orphans, and God's doing miraculous things through him. And he's also brought before the Sanhedrin, before this council, and accused of blasphemy against the temple and the law. So, so not only does Stephen refute these claims by proving that he hasn't blasphemed against God or the temple, but more importantly, he crafts his speech in a way to highlight the sovereignty of God throughout Israel's history despite human stubbornness, rebellion, and opposition. So Stephen uses, he uses three major periods from Israel's history. He addresses the patriarchs, and then he moves on to Moses, and then finally he finishes with the establishment of the tabernacle and the temple. Now we don't have time to read through or spend long in this text, and I encourage you to do this on your own, uh, but I want to summarize his speech for you and ask you to pay special attention to God's sovereign activity. So the first part he talks about the patriarchs. He begins with Abraham. 
And he highlights the divine initiative. God is the one who went to Abraham. God is the one who called him out of Ur and moved him to Haran. And God is the one who gives him this extreme promise of the land of Canaan and descendants, even though he didn't have any land in Canaan at the time and he was without an heir. And we see this fulfilled in the promise son. And we see this, uh, you know, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the, and the 12 patriarchs. And we just talked a little bit about the story of Joseph, and that's where Stephen goes next, and talking about him being sold into slavery, and yet God using that act for good. So neither the lack of a descendant or lack of lands for Abraham, nor even the evil act of selling Joseph into slavery could stop God's plans. That's the first movement there of Stephen's speech. The second part, he moves on to Moses. Now, Abraham's descendants flourished in Egypt, and they continued to grow until a, a new king made slaves out of them. And God allowed Joseph's descendants to become slaves, but in this way, he created a people for themselves. They continued to grow and multiply, yet the people in Egypt didn't want to mix with them because they were slaves. And so God created this people for himself, and he provides for them a savior. He provided for them Moses. Now, Moses is, has his own, his own problems. He's by no means perfect, but God sent Moses and used him powerfully to lead the people out of Egypt. Now, even in the, pay, in the face of Moses and the people's stubbornness, God miraculously saved them from the Egyptians. In the wilderness wanderings, we see God had manna and birds rain down from heaven to provide them food and, and water burst forth from rocks. But neither slavery nor Moses' shortcomings nor the people's rebellion in the wilderness could thwart the plans of God. So then Stephen moves on to the tabernacle and temple. Even though God is not bound by a physical place, he allowed the people of Israel to build a tabernacle and later a temple so that they could meet with him there. He allowed David's descendant Solomon to build the temple. And eventually the Israelites viewed the temple as, as a guarantee of their own salvation. They, they were meant to be a light to the nations. They turned inward, trying to contain God and control his work. Yet God promised through the line of David that a savior would come who would sit on the throne forever. He promised a true, the true physical presence of God himself comes in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah that they've been long been waiting for. And when this Messiah arrives, what do they do? Stephen says, you murdered him. But that couldn't stop the work of God. So neither the people's misunderstandings about God's nature, nor the resisting of God's work, nor the murder of the Messiah could thwart God's plans. Now, it's not surprising that, that Stephen's speech did not sit well with the Sanhedrin right? He accused them of, of murdering the Messiah. And so I, I want to read uh, the results that come after Stephen's incredible speech. And I'm picking up here in Acts chapter 7, verse 57 through 8-1. So after Stephen's speech, uh, they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Saul agreed with him being 
put to death. Now on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. I think the clue for understanding Acts 7 and what happens and, and, and follows can be found again in Gamaliel's wisdom. If this plan is of human origins, it will fail. But if it is of God, we will not be able to stop it. Now, Stephen was stoned to death. He was, he was martyred and severe persecution broke out against the church. How could this possibly be a good thing? How could God let this happen? Surely it would have been better for Stephen to stay there and continue to minister, to continue to perform mighty works, and the church continue on without persecution. How could God let such an evil thing happen? Well, look just a few verses down at chapter 8, verse 4. We read, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. God used Stephen's martyrdom as part of his plan to fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And as they go, they take the gospel with them and they preach. And right after this, we have Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, and he is saved and takes the gospel with him back to Africa, and the gospel continues to spread there. Remember who was standing witness to Stephen's martyrdom. It was Saul, and a seed was sown in his heart there. And we know that he became Paul, one of the greatest missionaries in the early church, and he went and spread the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire. And we are descendants, we are spiritual descendants of this very movement. This is part of our story. Because of their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel, people continue to share with people a generation and generation, and this is our story as well. Our sovereign God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. He is able to take even the most evil actions of man and bring about his good plan. God is still alive and active today, and in his sovereignty, he is using his church and believers all over the world to spread the good news of the gospel. There is no one nor anything that can stop it. No, not the threat of radical Islam, not any liberal agenda, and not even our culture's rejection of God. God uses both the good and the bad to accomplish his work. So what does all this mean for us? How do we respond to the sovereign Lord of the universe today? Well, first, this should lead us to worship. Our contemplation and meditation on the sovereignty of God, just like all his other attributes, should lead us to worship the one who holds all creation in his hands, who's sovereign over everything that exists for all time. It should lead us to worship the King to meditate on the truth of his sovereignty and worship him. Second, this should also lead us to submit to his authority. Now, some of us have an unhealthy desire for control. We try to control the situations going on around us. We try to control our possessions, our relationships. We try to control whatever we can because it gives us this false sense of security from the supposed control. And the reality is that we are not in control. God alone is sovereign. And as Wilkin writes, when we reach for control, we're saying that we believe we, rather than an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, infinitely good God, should govern the universe. 
So we must submit to the Lord's authority, release our unhealthy desire for control into his sovereign, loving, and capable hands. Third, we should also set our hope in his sovereignty. Though in our sufferings, sometimes it may not feel like God is in control, or we want to question why he allows the evil and suffering in this world, we can confidently cling to the truths of Scripture. Knowing that the Bible bears witness to the fact that our God is sovereign over all things, that he's good, that he knows all things, that he's always with us, and that he's working all things for good, for the good of those who love him, can give us great hope, even in the darkest and most desperate of seasons. We can put our trust in the sovereign God who will fulfill every one of his promises and accomplish his good will. Lastly, this should also lead us to serve him boldly and joyfully. We can't thwart his plans, but we get the privilege and the honor of participating in the unstoppable kingdom work that he is doing here on earth. God has in his sovereignty placed us into neighborhoods, into jobs, into relationships with people intentionally in his sovereignty so that we might share the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ with others. So let's take time looking at our our circles of influence where God has placed us, knowing that he is sovereign, has put us there on purpose, and see where he is calling us to join him in his kingdom work. I'd like to end this sermon on God's sovereignty with an extended quote from Tozer. Here's, Here's what Tozer had to say about the sovereignty of God. He says, we know that God will fulfill every promise made to the prophets. We know that sinners will someday be cleansed out of the earth. And we know that a ransomed company will enter into the joy of God and that the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their father. We know that God's perfections will yet receive universal acclamation. That all created intelligences will own Jesus Christ Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the present and perfect order will be done away and a new heaven and a new earth will be established forever. Toward all of this, God is moving with infinite wisdom and perfect precision of action. No one can dissuade him from his purposes and nothing can turn him aside from his plans. Since he is omniscient, there can be no unforeseen circumstances, no accidents. As he is sovereign, There can be no countermanded orders, no breakdown in authority. And as he's omnipotent, there can be no want of power to achieve his chosen ends. God is sufficient unto himself for all these things.